Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today on the show, I'm joined with Dr. Shoshana Levin-Fox as we talk autism outside the box. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Esper Studios. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Shoshana Levin-Fox. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fox. Hi, Reed. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you. Not a problem. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, professionally, first of all, I, I'm a child psychologist. I'm a trained play therapist. I'm an autism specialist, and most recently, I'm the author of a book called An Autism Casebook, The Child Behind the Symptoms. So I've got a long career of, uh, I'll admit, to 40 years. And uh, personally, I'll, I'll just share my, my, uh, my journey, my odyssey. I started out in small town Ohio, and from there went to Boston, ended up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And there, how did I get into autism? Um, I received a postdoctoral fellowship in the topic that I had chosen, which was research in autism. That was, at the time I was living in Canada as a, which was what they called a landed immigrant resident from SHRC, which is the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. And they approved it. I got the postdoctoral fellowship and which allowed me to go to Israel which is where I'm talking to you from and for 25 years from 1992 to 2017 I was working with a brilliant he's now passed away a brilliant courageous psychologist by the name of Professor Reuven Feuerstein allow me to spell it out for your for your listeners it's F-E-U-E-R-S-T-E-I-N. So until 2017, I was working at his institute, which many people have never heard of. But once you hear about it, you think, how did I never hear of this guy? How did I never hear about his work? And really, really an extraordinarily creative and courageous mind. And there I worked for 25 years with children with special needs of all kinds, but in particular, because of my special interest in autism, assessing and treating children, and here's an important point, who had been, most of whom had been diagnosed elsewhere, like other clinics, other specialists worldwide, because people come from all over the world to this particular place in Jerusalem, the Feuerstein Clinic. They'd been diagnosed as, as autistic, and lo and behold, in my work, I was finding that many of them were not autistic. They had other developmental problems. So that's that's my background in a nutshell. A so big nut. All right. So what is a typical day like for you? Um, my thoughts on that are, um, Reed, I wish I had a typical day. You know, I wish my days were typical. Um I um, 
wear two hats. Most most of the time, I'm continuing with my play therapy practice with typically developing children, not with children with any kind of special needs, children who are typically developing who have emotional and behavioral problem. And I'm doing um, a far less assessing of children uh, who have been diagnosed as autistic, but when, when those come my way, I'm happy to do them and provide a second opinion about what I think is um, going on with the child and how the, how the child can be helped from a different perspective out of the box. So, and then other than that, um, um, just, you know, appearing on podcasts and, um, and uh, spreading the word about my book, An Autism Casebook, personal interests, um, you know, but uh, every day is kind of different. So I, I wish I had a typical day, but that's. Uh, mm-hmm. How is autism? Can you tell me how autism is um, viewed out there in Israel? In Israel? Yeah. Um, but first of all, I would, I would ask you to remember that you're talking to someone who does not work in the way I'm going to describe. All right. Okay. And, okay. and, and later, I, I presume later in our conversation, I'll explain why I sort of call my um, method or way of working outside the box. But um, I'll tell you how most professionals in Israel are viewing um, autism and dealing, treating autism and so on. Generally, it's viewed in a, the conventional way. In other words, if you want to diagnose, di, you know, you want to diagnose a child, you get out the DSM-5 and you look through the criteria. Um, that's how most people, I, I use a different way. We can talk about that later. Most professionals accept the term spectrum. And I imagine many of your listeners do, you know, spectrum, and uh, another very uh, popular term these days, neurodiversity. So most people, I would say, are accepting that without question. I'm coming, I'm working from a different model. I'm working, mm-hmm. you know, not using those that terminology. Um, I think most professionals here in Israel um, consider autism as something you have, almost like a disease, you know, like once autistic, always autistic. And again, I've been blessed to be exposed to some brilliant practitioners who helped me um, develop other ways of looking, other ways of assessing a, a child and other ways of treating a child. So most people are kind of, you know, DSM and then you, move, then you move forward, and ABA is very, very popular in the schools, but there's a whole other way of working. I'm, I'm not sure if any of your other guests have presented it, called DIR Floor Time. Does that ring a bell? No, or, not oh, me. It's, it, oh, it's a beauty. It's a beauty. Um, can I take a couple of minutes about it? Because, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous, because it's one of the foundational... <laughs> It's one of the foundational methods that 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 I use, and it's been so incredibly helpful. So, DIR stands for Developmental Individual 
In other words, sensitive to individual needs and uh, patterns of development. And R, relationship-based, okay? And they have, I'll talk about the developers of, of it in a minute. And the floor time means that with a young child, you're going to be on the floor, starting right where that child is. And contrary to ABA, I know that ABA has changed. I've been told that you you have said that, and I've heard that from other people, that ABA has changed. And yet, nevertheless, in general, it's it's skill-focused, it's behavior-focused, whereas DIR works with the whole child. Now, I certainly didn't develop this. Um, Dark, the late uh, child psychiatrist and another incredibly brilliant and compassionate man, Dr. Stanley Greenspan, mm-hmm. and his colleague, Dr. Serena Weeder, who's a clinical psychologist, developed this method, and they've had astounding results with it. Um, so you asked me how it's viewed in Israel. So I would, I have, I've been out of the, this, I used to be in, when I worked at the Feuerstein Institute, I was in touch a lot, working in touch with the, uh, the established educational system here. Um, not within it, outside of it, definitely, because I was working at a private institute. And from my context, it was pretty clear that ABA was pretty much in ascendance. But I believe there have been some changes, and the DIR floor time people here, uh, Dr. Reiner poured a lot of energy into training a lot of wonderful people in DIR floor time here in Israel. And now I'm hearing, getting messages from parents that they can get their child into a kindergarten where DIR is used as opposed to ABA. So that's 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 what most people are doing is um, – the conventional way. Yeah. All right. Now, how do you treat those with um, ASD? Okay. Do you use a DIR floor time? Yeah, definitely. So I, I would say, first of all, um, before we talk, we talk about treating or we talk about intervention. I, I, I want to share with you a few terms that I think mm-hmm. are really, really critical to this perspective. Um, Nearly all of these terms, I didn't invent them, okay? They're out there. So the method that I have used combined what Professor Feuerstein was doing, which had to do with seeing all human beings as modifiable. Not everyone to the same degree, but everyone is modifiable. Very positive, very optimistic. Just take no prisoners. You know, a child would come from... France or Germany or wherever they would come from. And all the professionals there had tried to do such and such. And the professor would say to Mm -hmm. us, just that, okay, do it. In other words, very much focused on strengths and not accepting any diagnosis as a determinant. Well, this might be hard for some people as a determinant of who the human being is. In other words, that the depth of the human being and the potential of the human being, any human being, is much greater Mm -hmm. and much deeper than any diagnosis. Um, Now, I know 
uh, I know that many uh, people, uh, I think in particular young adults these days have adopted, adopted, you know, find that the autism diagnosis has just clarified with them for them so much. And I would never take that away from, from that young adult who feels that. But as a practitioner, primarily working with young children, I would never, uh, if, if autism, a genuine true autism, which I can talk about later if you like, is applicable, I have no problem saying that. But then I get to work and really try to change things for the child. So I, I used a combination of Feuerstein's incredible optimism, but it's much more than optimism. There's no way in our short talk that I could begin to do justice to his 60-year career and the thousands and thousands of lives that he changed. But let's just say that that's the essence. And combine that with the developmental approach of DIR floor time, which gives the practitioner ways of interacting with a child who is communication impaired and changing everything that the child presents that appears not to be communicative, how to change it into what DIR calls circles of communication, how to create a circle. I'm going to share with you some other uh, some other vocabulary here. Most people see autism as a trait. It's part of who the child is. The child is autistic, so that he's autistic. Feuerstein taught, and I found this to be true and work with literally thousands of children, that it's important to, as a practitioner, it's important to regard it as a state, not a trait. What's the difference? A state is something that has the potential for change. And I found that to be incredibly helpful. So before I talk about treating, I want to say it's how we see autism as a state, but not a trait. And that comes from the professor. We don't look for symptoms. Most psychologists, when they see a child, perhaps an adult as well, look for symptoms. Oh, yep, yeah, right. Trouble with um, socialization. Right, okay. Uh, trouble with verbal... Oh, yeah, right. Another tick. Well, we didn't look for the symptoms. We actually can see them rather quite readily. We look for strengths. And then Feuerstein had this gorgeous term called islets of normalcy. Hmm. Some people take offense at that, but it really just means strengths. And those strengths can be really, really teensy, 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 take them and create from like eye contact that suddenly connects with the child or a sense of taking the child all hands you something that's an islet of normalcy the child imitates play when i'm playing with the child in front of the mirror the child shows pleasure or contact in relationship even if it's just for two seconds that counts and then we take that and turn that into um, the cir create circles of communication from the DIR floor time model. And the result was so much developmental change. So I used 
yes, your conclusion is really, really astute. You said, did I use DIR floor time? I used it not only to treat, which is its usual uh, use, is for treating and helping those children to grow and move away, move out of their symptoms, which is indeed possible. But I used it to assess them. And I found that it gave me interacting with the child, playing with them, tickling them, bubbles, jumping with them, gave me so much more developmental information about how this child could be helped than ticking off boxes in a symptom checklist or ticking off the DSM criteria. Does that, does that give you a bit of a sense of what, where we're coming from? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's different. Now, would you consider DIR floor time unconventional towards what regular? No, no. Oh, excellent question. Wow, I like that. No, not at all. I mean, they're they're really working to become mainstream. The part that's unconventional, I think, is um, from my experience. I could be wrong, but I I haven't seen too many people use DIR floor time to assess the child. Um, I think what's unconventional about the view that I'm presenting, and it comes very much from the Feuerstein Institute, is autism as a state and not a trait, um, looking for strengths and not for symptoms. I used to say to parents, and I, I, I really don't mean to be, I hope I, this will not be offensive to anyone, but I used to say to, to parents when they were sitting opposite, with opposite me in my office, um, you know, I could see the child's strengths and I would say to them, don't worry. I also see where your child is stuck. In other words, this is not Pollyanna talking. Everything is all rosy. But I said to them, you know, to tell you the truth, the cleaning lady could come in when I finish work and she could have a look at, just glance at your child and say, Gee, Shoshana, that child doesn't have very good eye contact. Um, gee, that, that little boy's not talking. In other words, looking at symptoms just gives you such a superficial um, portrait, so to speak, of the human being. So the unconventional part is the fact that we're looking for strengths and not symptoms, not prepared to use the uh, DI, uh, sorry, the DSM-5 for reasons that I'll be happy to talk about if you want me to, um, not because it creates a lot of false positives. And I want to I see each child for the individual that they are and try to help each child according to their individual mm-hmm. needs. Now, do you have an age range of the of yeah. who you treat, or do you go all the way from young all the way up to those who are oh, okay. adults who are diagnosed? Right. Very. Yeah, that was very interesting. Most of the for the twenty five years I was at the Feuerstein Institute from nineteen ninety two to two thousand and seventeen, most of the children that I saw were younger, up to age say four five, six, seven. However, I also assessed children in middle childhood, seven, eight, nine, ten, 
um, a smaller number of teens and an even smaller number of adults. And the adults that I saw, um, the ones that I saw that came my way had been institutional because they were older. They were in their 40s and they had been institutionalized for much of their life because unfortunately, 40 years ago, you know, there was things were not so good. I'm not saying they're great now, but I, they were sure not so good then. And, 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 and a far, so most of them are young children. I think part of it, Reed, has to do with the fact that in Israel, um, special education, in other words, the children are not integrated. And we at the Feuerstein Institute were very passionate about the importance of children with any kind of special need just about any kind of special need being integrated. There are many reasons why in Israel it's not done. I don't think they're great reasons at all. Um, and so by the, by the time the child hits first, second, third grade, usually a child that's been diagnosed as autistic is gonna find themselves in a special class. And I, I wondered why we weren't, I saw them. I mean, definitely saw those children. Um, I worried that some of the parents had given up, you know, seven, eight, my child's 10 years old. He's been in special education now for four years. Um, what could possibly be done? I don't know. I can't answer my own question. I don't know. I saw them. I, I saw those children, but they were, they were the minority before they hit school age here were the mostly. Yeah. Now you say you use unconventional ways. Yeah. What kind of methods do you use besides the DIR floor time? Um, primarily, uh, well, I first of all, I look for islets of normalcy from the Feuerstein model. And uh, those, I, I, you know, I gave you a few examples before, whether it was a, can be a flash of humor, a flash of warmth, expression of emotion, cure, a little flash of curiosity. And so first of all, identifying those islets of, of, of normalcy in the child, and then taking them and expanding them through play activities. Um, yes, using the DIR floor time, but it's, it's much more than that because it's a whole, it's a whole um, worldview. And, and then what I would do that would be different with the parents, uh, often, so often the parents are so discouraged. They're just so incredibly discouraged and I put tremendous energy into encouraging the parent, but also helping to see their child's strengths and giving them the tools. So I would work with the child and then I would say, this is really important. Did you see that when I started to sing to your child instead of talking to him, that he looked right in my eyes and his face relaxed? And the mom would say, yeah, I see that. Mom, I want you to do that at home. I realize you can't sing to your child 18 hours a day. I'm just saying to you, when you want his attention, can you use a melodic kind of a voice? Time for peas and carrots, something like that. When you get that eye contact, can you give him a little smile? Can you give him a nice soft touch? In other words, trying to give the parent the developmental tools that they could take home 
and get we can get some momentum going. All right. Now, what is your success rate with it? All right. You want numbers? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you, Reed, I was too busy. I, too busy doing the work. We were our system was not computerized the years that I worked there. Um, I know that I saw um, several thousand children over the 25 years, um, not all of whom had been diagnosed as autistic. Um, I know that we made a difference. I speak to it in the book. I speak to it in an autism casebook, exactly that question. So although I don't have numbers, I do have memory of my colleagues and I, because this wasn't a, a one-man show, my colleagues and I, um, creating significant change for many children. Uh, we helped, we saved a lot of lives, is all I, is all I can tell you. I do want to provide one statistic that I think that I can right. say. Um, after working there for, for a number of years, maybe 15, 20, I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. All these young children are coming in with an aut autism diagnosis. And most of them had a developmental problem, which was not at all necessarily autism. But they were, um, and I thought, wait a second, the numbers of genuinely autistic, and I'll be happy to define how I see um, a genuine autism. The numbers of genuinely autistic children, I estimated that 90% of the children that were coming in, having been diagnosed using the DSM-4 or the DSM-5, indeed, most of them, not all of them, had developmental problems, not maybe 10% or less. And I thought, oh, no, come on, Shoshana, you have to be exaggerating. I mean, I didn't publicize this figure. I, I, didn't, I didn't put that figure in the book because I was too busy on the floor doing the work and pouring so much to help the parents say, no, 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 the diagnosis is not a determinant of your child. Look at the beautiful humor in his eyes. Look at that caring heart. Look, look, look how he's attempting this difficult learning problem. Look at the flexibility he just, even his meltdown shows he's got a world of feelings in himself. In other words, I was busy doing what I could do best. But I want to talk to the 90%. And I thought, well, you know, maybe you're just exaggerating. Come on. And then at one point, the, the professor uh, wanted to do a research project looking at the um, looking at the cases, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases where the children are coming with an autism diagnosis. And um, he hired a graduate student to come in and interview me. And I'm sorry to say that the, the graduate student just did not get it. <laughs> and, and so we're looking over piles and piles and piles and piles and piles of um, files of children that I had worked with. 
and I see what I've written in my summaries. And I'm writing things like, I'll, I'll make something else. This, this would not be, you know, an actual quote, obviously, from memory. And I wouldn't talk about an actual child uh, other than to, to share kind of the line of progress. But um, the, um, I'd write something like, um, mm, here's one I used in the book, actually, so it's, it's fine to talk about it. Um, six-year-old... Uh, Jimmy, let's call him. Six-year-old Jimmy came in today with his parents. Um, he's been diagnosed as, as autistic and is in a special kindergarten for autistic children. And um, however, um, as I started to work with uh, Jimmy, I noticed that um, his eye contact is extremely good. He's extraordinarily emotionally present. He didn't say a word, but I gave him some very difficult learning tasks that involved a whole process of thinking, and he followed it stepwise with no problem. At a certain point, when I gave him a hard, very hard task, his parents were shocked, and they burst into applause. Jimmy burst into tears as if his heart would break. My suspicion, and it proved to be correct, was that not that Jimmy didn't want to talk, his eyes told me he was right there. His particip participation told me he was right there, right there with me. Um, nothing autistic about, he wasn't cut off. He wasn't cut off from his feelings or from me. He wanted to talk. He could make sounds like, uh, 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 like that. I said, you know, to his parents, I said, I'm not a speech and language pathologist, but I think your son has what's called oral dyspraxia. Oral dyspraxia means there's no higher hard wiring from the brain to the mouth. It would be like, like we can't, I, I'm assuming you can't wiggle your ears, right? I can't wiggle my ears. So you could say to me, Shoshana, to answer this question, please wiggle one, your left ear, if you understand, and wiggle your right ear if you want to say something. It's not <laughs> happening. Something's not good. Because there's no hard wiring. And some people apparently have the gene that they can, but most of us can't. So I said, <laughs> well, those are not your ears. That doesn't count. <laughs> Read, that doesn't count. No, no, that was cheating. That was cheating. I can do that too. I can do that with eyebrow. <laughs> I love it. Um, so I sent them to a specialist. The, the parents broke down in tears when he broke down in tears. I mean, the child was just, it's like, I want to talk. Don't you guys get it? I want to talk, but I can't because this is not working. So I sent them to a specialist uh, in another city uh, who was uh, had a brilliant method of working with oral dyspraxia. And um, the mother called a month later to say he's spoken his first word. What happened beyond that? He did, they did not keep track. Now, why do I mention this? In every single file, I had written a description 
a functional description of what I thought was what looked like what's called autistiform behaviors. Autistiform is autistic-like, right? And 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 the graduate student who was doing this project, it was just. You know, he said, oh, you mean like he's autistic because he's, I said, no, 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 no. He's not autistic. He has the following developmental challenge. This is what's going on. My point, bottom line, my point is um, I I then realized that my estimate of 90% of the children being misdiagnosed as autistic was not la la land that mm. it was after going through all those tests now i want you to ask me why do i think it's happened why do i think so many <laughs> am i allowed to do that yeah you can so yeah I, I kind of understand where you're coming from though why you think so many are misdiagnosed i mean if you look at it and a lot of people i've talked to have even said it if you look at it in the venn diagram asd and adhd have so many similar traits right and I have a friend who says you can have the traits of autism, but not be autistic. Bravo. I love, I have I a love, friend. I friend. Yep. I got another friend of mine who's got some of the traits of autism and he got, went to get tested and he, and he's like, they said, you don't have autism. You have ADHD, but not autism. But yet he has the traits of autism. Plus the fact he's very naive and very gullible. That's right. But yet, That's right. He can do everything else just fine. Right. And then you put, you. why do I think so many um, children are being misdiagnosed these days? We now have the DSM-5. I'm assuming your le- listeners would know what the DSM is, right? Yeah, the DSM <laughs> is the, 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 the holy book of diagnosis <laughs> of, of autism. Right. If well, it, uh, it's of all psychiatric and psychological diagnoses. It's yeah. it's actually was never meant to be a clinical uh, resource. It was meant to help people. I I don't know. I think with some kind of statistics after World Insurance or whatever after World War II. But at any rate, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. But the DSM four was problematic because let's. I'll focus on the DSM-5, which is even more problematic. How are, how are the, is autism, the, the, the diagnostic criteria for autism, they're described as a range of symptoms, like trouble establishing social relationships, let's say, from very mild to very severe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't know. I think I would. I'm sure in seventh grade I fit somewhere in there, and I didn't have anything to do with the cutoff, essential cutoffness of autism. I really wanted friends, but I wasn't a great friend maker. So once you have diagnostic criteria, so called, that talk about a range, well, hello, we got to open our eyes. We got a problem. You know, we got it. We've having it's it's not rocket science. It's not medical science. Medical science can tell you what your blood count is, mm-hmm. but with the developmental issues, if once we have a range from very mild 
to very serious, whether it's social communication or nonverbal communication or verbal communication that's arranged from a little bit to a lot, we have a huge problem. And guess what? Then we're going to get a lot of what's called false positives. And 25 years of experience in the field showed me, man, are we getting a lot of them. Why do I think it's a problem? Well, it's clearly a problem because the diagnosis then covers up what's really going on with this child. Why is he not talking? Like the little example I gave before. He'd been diagnosed by some very respectable um, experts, you know, as autistic. Well, hello. His brain wasn't hired. His mouth wasn't hired, hardwired to, it, to his brain. I mean, I've seen children with um, hearing problems. Um, either they were undiagnosed or they were diagnosed and people just didn't realize how we needed to help the child to, you know, that had nothing to do with autism. Just like your friend who says, well, I can have some aspects that kind of are autistic form, mm -hmm. but that doesn't make him autistic. So the fact that the DSM-5 is so elastic is a huge problem. And interestingly, I was reading... Um, Silverman's book, um, Neurotribes, which, um, you know, I'm, I'm working outside that model. I read it and I read every word and I was impressed with his uh, journalistic abilities for sure. Um, didn't buy into a lot of, a lot of stuff he was saying, but, um, interestingly, he pointed out that, um, a, on purpose, per the decision was made, I don't want to say the name because I, I might get it wrong, but he named a particular specialist in England um, in the field of autism um, that had said, yes, we wanted to expand the diagnosis so that more children will get services. Well, I can understand that. Unfortunately, I kind of feel like, like a monster has been created. And lots of children with all kinds of difficulties that need to be, they need to be helped with are being considered autistic. So there you go. Now, do you have anyone in your family who's autistic? Oh, I, that is such a great question. I definitely have someone who is definitely not autistic. Okay. And let me okay. tell you his story. My wonderful brother did not talk. Till he was four. I mean, he was he was right there. He was playing and right right with us. And if he wanted ketchup, I remember at the age of four, eh, 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 pointing at the ketchup and going. Eh, eh, eh. Fortunately, those many years ago, there was not a DSM five, or he might have gotten pegged because now he's a. And he always was a completely normal child afterwards. My mother, very sensibly, got him a local speech therapist. And within a month, he was talking. Today, uh, I would worry that that might have resulted in a completely inaccurate misdiagnosis of autism. So, nope, I don't have anyone... You know, in other words, that wasn't what led me to 
say, be working in the field of autism or something like that. I was just always kind of drawn to the children that were imploded. They were inside themselves, and I, I seemed to be able to help them most of the time. And that okay. was helpful. Now, can you tell me a little bit about your book? Uh, it was a labor of love. Okay. Yeah, it was a labor of love. An autism casebook is uh, basically 14 case stories. And I really want the reader to, I wanted the reader to get a sense of what it's like with the child in the room and what's going on in the mind of the clinician that's working outside the box. It's not looking for symptoms, looking for strengths, looking for tiny sparks to make into bonfires. I wanted to give them a feel of what it really felt like and also talk about um, the challenges and talk about the children's progress, talk about how the parents uh, made significant changes and were able to help their child. Um, I consider it story, the stories of hope, you know, because there's so much that can be done for children with social communication problems. Okay. Now, what would you recommend to parents who are listening who have a child who's on the spectrum? Um, who's been diagnosed as autistic? Because yes. you remember, you're talking to someone who's outside the spectrum spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, who's been diagnosed as autistic? Um, I would say, first of all, find professionals who see your child's strength. Find professionals to work with your child who believe in your child's capacity to change and see that capacity. That's very, very important. In other words, uh, may I just make an aside here if we have time read the um, conference of the ICDL, International Council for Development and Learning, which is one of the two main organizations that train and promote DIR floor time, just finished. Their virtual conference just finished last week. And time and again, I heard stories by parents saying, we were told our child will never do this, and our child will never do this, and our child, and until we reached the shores of DIR floor time, our lives were that were very difficult. Um, related to that, and I have no um no interest, you know, no, no subjective, uh, you know, uh, ulterior motive in saying this other than for the good of the child and for the parent. My experience is that people who are practitioners of DIR floor time see the whole child and, I, and, and work with the entire child, not just with unique behaviors. And I would think they would be safe practitioners. Um, can I mention one or two other things that I'd recommend to parents? Sure. Sure, yeah. No okay. Um, I would, um, I would hope that, I mean, I wish I could share all of it with parents, but I can't, but parents would learn to, you know, focus on your child's strengths, I would say, and learn to, uh, develop creative ways in your own way to bring out those strengths and to expand those strengths. I would also say to parents, um, talk to your child, talk to your child so 
often parents of diagnosed children, we had many parents who've been told by other sometimes very high-ranking professionals, oh, don't bother talking to your child. He doesn't understand you anyway. And we're just completely opposed to that kind of thing. So talk to your child, not out, not quizzing, not saying, what's this? Eraser, no. What's this? That's not talking to your child. What's this? Cell phone, no, 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 no. Just talk. Guess what? We're going in the car and we're going to go down to the 7-Eleven and we're going to buy you some chips. No response from kid. Keep talking. Oh, the traffic is miserable. I can't believe it. That guy cut me off. You've got to talk to the child. That's why I called part of my book, The Child Behind the Symptoms. Talk to that child. You will, over time, see a difference in feel a difference in something it it's much more complex than that but i uh and the last thing i would say is a big plug for dads dads are important dads out there you are important and a lot of times uh, read i found that it's much harder it was much harder for the dads of a diagnosed child than for the moms and i really 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 try to um, encourage the dads and show them ways that they could play with their child. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd encourage the moms, I'd say, don't nag your husband to, to take your child to the park. Encourage him. Share with him some of the things that you've been doing, mom, that lead to your child vocalizing more, that lead to your child looking at you. Um, more fully in the face that lead to your child giggling. Share them with the dad. Um, Part of that, I think, has to do with our culture, you know, where, you know, uh, it was much easier for for the mothers to break down in tears and share their fear for their child's future. And so whereas the dads, and I say this, with much compassion, the dads, you know, uh, yeah, I can tough it out. I can, I can do this. But a lot of times that meant dads were spending more time at work mm-hmm. and so on. So, wow, dads, you are so important. You are just so important. And find your own channel of, of playful connection with your child. And there again, and I have no ulterior motive, you know, I don't get a cut from the DIR people. You know, I'm still learning it as I, as I do it myself, it it can really give you tools of connection with your child. So. Now you say that some children don't have autism. Would Mm. you agree that some of them may be misdiagnosed with because of ADHD and autism and even sensory processing disorder almost share some of the same. Oh yeah. But those aren't, but those aren't, those aren't the only things that could be mistaken for autism, for sure. But not 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 just, I mean, children with oral dyspraxia, children with genetic conditions, children with emotional problems from mild to moderate to severe, their issues can sometimes be mistaken for autism. Would break my heart to see um, children with hearing problems, sometimes diagnosed, sometimes undetected, it was just assumed 
that the, and, and they've just been granted an, an autism diagnosis. And I said, the parent, no, your child has nothing to do with autism. His social communication problems have to do with um, the hearing and people are not giving enough credence to the impact of hearing on social communication. And we have to factor that into what's happening with your child and help him on the ground. So while, yes, I'm sure there's overlap with those two things that you've mentioned, there are a whole lot of other, and you know what? This is, this is really out of the box. You don't hear this from many psychologists. You hear from some, I'm meeting them as I make, as I meet professionals around the world in relation to the book. Not every condition that a child has, has to have a diagnostic terminology in order to understand it. Not every aspect of child development has a diagnosis and you can still understand the child. You can still help them meaningfully. I did this with my colleagues and the professor for 25 years, so I'm not talking through my hat. We saw it before our very eyes. And finally, where can people find out more about you and your book? Okay. Okay. So the book, an, an autism casebook, is obviously available on Amazon and um, Book Depository and Barnes and Noble and all those all those other good places. Um, my name is Shoshana Levin Fox, and my website is shoshanalevinfox.com. Um, there's a contact form there. I love hearing from people. Um, I love hearing from readers. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. LinkedIn more professionally, Facebook more, I would say tangentially, but LinkedIn and through my website and um, happy to answer people's questions. Obviously, without knowing their children, I can't I can only try to get them to people in their area kind of thing. Right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fox, Shoshana. It's been a great show and I've learned so much from you. Thank you, Reed. I, I uh, just as you said uh, in a few minutes before the show, uh, I felt completely, completely at ease just sharing, and uh, I really appreciate this opportunity and wish you only good success uh, on future shows too. Thank you very much, and I'll see you in the next one, everyone. Bye bye. the way things used to be I'm no big fan of now I must have some sweeter memories somewhere in the cloud welcome to the new normal welcome to the new normal welcome to the new normal shout
miss all you used to be Gonna miss all you had Consigned to the dustbins of history Like opinions from your dead Talk to the freaks. You can talk to just about anybody you happen to meet. 